The button has been hit. It is that time again. It's episode number four of Kovic Talk. Um, I just want to give a really, really quick shout out to people that have been listening. Uh, as I'm sure you've realized by now, I have jumped on the bandwagon um, and I've started a podcast just like everyone else out in the world. Um, but look, the response has been uh, amazing. So if you're listening, if you're sharing, um, thank you. You know, um, today's a great example of why did I even bother to, to make a podcast? And whether I consider my time in the sciences or if I consider my time in music, there's been a few people that I've come across that have really helped me navigate my life, navigate the industries that I'm in. And this guy is the perfect example of that. So when it comes to work ethic, this guy's unparalleled. He has played some of the biggest stages in the world. He's got massive records. Uh, today, I get to introduce you to Mr. Gareth Emery. So mate, it's been a while how are you doing very good i don't know how i'm going to follow up that introduction um but thank you uh, go on what what part of it wasn't true then eh? no no i'm just not I, I think like many people in the music industry who've achieved things i've never been very comfortable with my own achievements so when they read back to me in a list like that i'm always like oh no i, I don't know it's but which is probably why i've had some to be honest but um we won't get too deep into the psychoanalysis 10 seconds in but thank you i'll start again lovely intro great to be here i'm awesome <laughs> You know what that you, you couldn't have you couldn't have started on a better note because you're just so grounded when it comes to it with everything that you've done I think you never forget to wake up every morning and just give it 100% and today's a great example I know that you're in, in the middle of a, another album you're moving house you've got the kids running around uh, that's kind of what I mean so like how, how are you handling the juggle right now how's it going in, in the life of Gareth Emery? I mean, it's always a balance, right? And for a long time, I kind of struggled to make sense of work-life balance, particularly after I had kids. Before I had kids, I didn't have to think about it too much because it was just 100% work, like 99% work and 1% partying and going crazy. Um, but there was no need for balance. And then when I had kids, I was like, well, shit, like I can't be staying up till like seven in the morning working anymore because like I would just spend no time with them. So... I started thinking a lot about how to balance my life at that point. And I guess I realized it is just a balance. You know, the fact that it's a balance means there is no perfection. You're never going to be perfect at work or perfect as a family man or like as a husband or whatever. And you just like try and balance them as best as best as you can. Right. So is there stuff I like? Is there great stuff my kids have done that I've missed because I've been working because I've been on tour? Absolutely. Um, on the other hand, have I also turned down like some really awesome work opportunities um, and missed out on various tours because it was important for me to spend my family? Absolutely. So you just have many. Of, I have many of these decisions to make and I try and make them as, as, as kind of best as possible. But it's, it's always a balance. Yeah, I can imagine. And, that, you know, it's going to be a balance for me doing this podcast because there's so much that I want to dive into. I don't even know where to start. And in I think in many respects, this is kind of like a selfish one because this is like my little way of kind of packing away uh, a lot of lessons and a lot of stories of yours kind of for, for reference and uh, for a lot of people out there because, you know, you, you came up in the scene, if I'm getting this right, from Southampton. You know, yeah. you're, you're out, out, out Southampton and run me through it. You're in your bedroom making music. At some point you go to Manchester, at some point you end up in LA. So, so what happened with your journey? So I was always into music, right? So I played the piano from the age of like four. We just had one in the house. Nobody else really played it. We weren't a musical family, so to speak. But there was a random old antique piano and I would just 
like fuck around with it basically. So mm. that's how I started out. And then like like for most of my upbringing, like it was bands was my thing, right? Like so, you know, the Britpop era, it was like Oasis and Blur and Shed 7 and stuff like that. And, and my ambition for most of my life up to the age of 18 was to be in a band, was to, and I was in like a bunch of bands and stuff at college. That was like, was, was my thing. Discovered electronic music when I went to university. Um, and then for a few years, I kind of juggled them both. So I did electronic music on one hand and bands on the other. And for me, it was like, wherever I get the record deal first, that's where I'm going. Um, right. I, I love both sides. I love being in the band. I love making music on the computer. And did you have the haircut for the band side of things? Nah, I was always like... The, the other people in my band looked more... They were like Mancunians, right? So they looked more yeah. legit, whereas I was like this, like, southern townie wearing, like, a Ben Sherman shirt who looked somewhat out of place in, like, a northern sort of indie band. But, like, I was I was good enough at the music side to, to, to get away with it. But, yeah, like, I, I was doing them both. And I was like, whichever one kicks off first, that's the direction I'm going to go in. And um, it just happened. I got my first record deal in electronic music and once that happened well, I mean, I've, I've got to I've got to try and jump in there because <laughs> as you know a lot of people who who are kind of listening to my stuff we're, we're a lot of musos you know a lot of people in the industry and people typically compress that little area you say you know I just got a record deal like how how did that happen for you how does someone just get a record deal in that position yeah I'm probably oversimplifying five years of work into <laughs> yeah, in, 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 into one sentence yeah so when I first started making electronic music, like it fucking sucked, right? So I was, um, I had one little keyboard called a Yamaha DJX. Because at that point, to make music, to make electronic music, the studios cost an absolute fortune. It was all hardware. You couldn't do it on computer like, like you can do now. So like, you know, it was like 15 or 20 grand for a studio and I just, I just didn't have that cash. So I was making it on this crappy keyboard, but I was like sending out demos to labels because the other thing was, and this is back in like 99, 2000, you couldn't email a demo. You had to send mm. them on CDs. The record labels, at least in dance music, were, it was like an impenetrable wall. Like they didn't have email addresses on their releases. They didn't have phone numbers. So you literally would just send off your CDs in jiffy bags into the ether and typically you'd hear nothing back. So every few months I'd get a new batch of demos. I would send off three or four tracks in jiffy bags to all my favourite record labels None of them would ever apply. And I carried on doing that for a couple of years, um, despite plenty of people going, yeah, anybody replied to you yet? No, maybe it's not for you. You know, stuff that we all probably experience on, on the way up. But and for it, you, when you when when you were, you know, packing away those CDs in the jiffy bag, sending them out, you said two years go by, no one's picking up the phone, no one's getting in touch with you. Yeah. There must have been some... Where, I don't know, perseverance or insanity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, you must have had family and friends at you saying like, you know, why do you keep pursuing this when you're obviously not getting the, the feedback you want? What What do you think is about your mentality, even back then? Why did you keep sending out the jiffy bags? Why did you keep doing that? I mean, the thing was at that age, you know, I, I was in my early 20s. I didn't, like, I didn't think about failure. Like for me, it, it which is weird, right? Because like now... I'm a little bit more, I consider the downside and I think about like how you can hedge a situation. But at 20, I think honestly, I just didn't, like failure was never an option. In my mind, the record deal was going to happen 
And I always thought it was going to be with this batch of Jiffy bags. And then as no response came, it would be the next batch of Jiffy bags. Because I, I knew the music was getting better. And I could yeah. see that every time I sent a new batch of demos, the music was like 50% better than the last time. So I was always like, all right, like I've improved 50%. Now we're going to be there. It just turned out there was much more improvement needed than I realised. And that's one lesson I often tell people, right? And, and, and like these days it's actually pretty easy to get your music heard. And when I talk to young producers, particularly electronic music, and they're like, how do, you, do I get a record deal? I'm like, make something that's good enough. Because for the most part, record labels these days are pretty decent at listening to music, much better than they were like 20 years ago. If you're sending stuff out, people are listening to it. So if you're not getting a deal, it's because your stuff just is not good enough. And that's fine. See, so because you, you've got to go back and work on your craft and, and continue to work on it. So, um, and, and then... I think one thing that did help, I remember maybe a year or so in, I got a phone call and it was a bloke who ran a record label in London. And it's like, oh, I get this bloke. I remember very well this bloke called Nils Hess. Now, to me, growing up in Southampton, London was like the epitome of cool. And anybody that sounded like they were from London was like way cooler than us, like, you know, farmery sort of Hampshire lot. And this bloke was, oh, Gareth, Nils Hess here from Undercover Music Group in London. He goes, I've listened to your demos. And I was thinking, it's the deal. It's happening. And he goes, yeah. He goes, and none of them, none of them are right for us, if I'm honest. None of them are really that great. He goes, but I see potential. And he goes, and I'm going to send you some music. He goes, I want you to listen to it. He goes, I want you to absorb it, take it on board. He goes, and then you'll see the sort of stuff that's going to get you a deal. So he sent me about 15 compilation CDs, which was amazing. And um, what was his name again? Nils Hess, he was called. He was a Nils, Ger- Hess. Nils Hess. He was a German guy originally, um, but he was living in London. He's like a tech. He's kind of a techno guy. He's probably still around in some form. And um, that was the first positive feedback I ever received from the industry. So once I had my phone call from Nils Hess, I was like, okay, it's going to happen at some point. And it didn't happen with him, but I, I was on my way. Then I ended up kind of going what would have been today the SoundCloud route the independent Mm -hmm. route. And I was like, you know what? I'm not really getting any luck here with what I'm sending out. So I'm just going to fucking press some records up myself. So again, like to get records to DJs in 2001, you had to press them onto vinyl. So I begged money from my parents and I I had some money from like the job I was in. I was doing a day job and I had, it would cost like, I don't know, like a thousand pounds or whatever to go and press up like 500 vinyls. So I did that with one of my records and I sent them to, sent them out to DJs. And I was like, you know what? Like fuck the record labels. If nobody's interested, I'm just going to go, go direct to the DJs. And they were actually much easier to speak to than the record labels, which I also think is a lesson. Like sometimes if you're trying to go down a certain path for years and every door just getting slammed in your face, go and think where there's an alternative path. Because the DJs, they had emails on their website. So I could send them a record and then I could chase them up and go, yo, have you, have you listened to it? Like, what do you think? And these were like the biggest DJs in the world. They were much more, they were much easier to contact. Um, mm. So I sent out... It's really, you know, it's, it's actually really poignant there. Like, because there's two things I almost want to unpack. I mean, the first thing, I was talking recently with a guy called Endor. I don't know if you know him. He's the guy who did that Pump It Up remix. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Off right now. He's, yeah. he's a really, really fucking class dude. And he's a really grounded guy. And he, you know what? He did exactly the same thing. He was sending it out to kind of DJs and stuff. And he got picked up, got a few spins, and then the momentum started. Yeah. And it's just, it's funny how, how those two stories have, have crossed my path just like a couple of weeks away. But also that the thing about the guy 
picking up the phone. I mean, that's something that all of us listening, it's like, isn't it, isn't it mad how that tiniest bit of, of encouragement can, can completely change the route of someone's life? Like, it can make such a huge difference. So if, if you're listening out there, go and, go and encourage something if you like it, you know. It's a big one. Oh, no, massively. And I try and do it whenever I get the chance. Mm. Um, especially if it's somebody who I don't think is getting much encouragement. So, you know, if somebody's blowing up on SoundCloud, they don't really need an additional comment from me. But when it's like some kid who's trying to make music and I can see the potentials there, but he hasn't quite got it yet. Somebody who I feel is not getting encouragement from anybody else. Those will be the people who I'll like drop a message to and try and try and try and help on. But yeah, man, Nils Hess, he, he definitely helped me out. And, you know, so I went the DJ route the DJs all started playing my music and that was really helpful because before I knew it, I was getting, tr- I remember a track was played on Radio 1 from an Essential Mix live from Mardi Gras. Um, I think from anybody from the UK, um, this was definitely the case back then. I think it's probably still the case now. First Radio 1 play is really a sign that things are happening for you. Doesn't mm. matter if it's the middle of the fucking night. Like that first Radio 1 play, that's like, I think your friends and family are going to be, um, are going to be impressed by that. And um, it kind of went from there. Then once I was getting DJs playing my stuff, once I was on Radio 1, then the record labels took attention. And that is still something that happens today. You know, record labels are not always, are not necessarily there to develop artists. They're not usually there to see the untapped potential and go, yeah, yeah, you're 70% of the way there. Let's get you to 100%. They want to see you when you're like 99%. And it's already fucking happening. And they see mm. that you're going from 99% to like 200% with or without them and they just jump on that um the rise that's usually how it how it seems to happen how how do you feel about that dynamic because um you know the first person who came on the podcast someone called uh Corinne Campbell and really champions amazing stuff when it comes to independent releases yeah. looking at all the tools we have nowadays obviously like we're we're talking about an area in time where the kind of tools and functionality that we have now just just didn't exist so it was right, a different yeah. dynamic but how what's your impression how do you feel about what's happening with labels now and the fact that they're not developing because some some people have different schools of thought that labels should be helping to develop artists and kind of hold their hands through it. And other people, and I think I sit in this group, it's like, if people want to do music and they've got the passion for it, then you need to see who's got like, I suppose their own initiative to just crack on and do it. Because did you feel like you were kind of being let down by the industry or did you see it as a a good way to kind of prove yourself and get focused and really knuckle down on, on your craft? Yeah, I've never seen it as being like a letdown thing. Like, yeah, if we're talking sort of pie in the sky, how would we like the world to be? Which I don't think mm. is a very helpful place to spend my time, to be honest, which I don't... Exactly. But it's like, if we were, yeah, it would be great if record labels spotted talent and developed artists. Um, and I think particularly right now, right, like most, a lot of the artists that labels are picking up are very, very good at the marketing and social media game, maybe not so good about the, uh, the music. And, and perhaps if labels were more proactively developing artists, there are artists that will not have made it in today's cutthroat climate of social media and digital marketing that we may have wanted, may have wanted to hear. However, there's absolutely no point me, you or anybody listening sitting there going, oh, what a shame that the major labels or whoever are not doing their part in artist development. Mm. I think a lot of independent labels, by the way, are much better at this. 
um, than the majors tend to be. The majors will jump on when something is already a sure thing. The, the independents can be a bit better at it. <clears throat> but no, I never saw it as like letting me down. I saw it as this is the landscape and I need to find out what my particular strengths are to make the most of the landscape that we're in. And I think that's what everybody needs to do, right? Figure out what you do well and work out how to, you know, sort of deploy your abilities the best. So we're, we're going to go back to, to the story of your development, but just quickly on that note, what, what do you think are your strengths and what do you think are, are your weaknesses in, in your game? Out of interest. Um, my strengths is from, well, I think, I think there's a few, right? Like, because I look at both musical and kind of on the marketing business side, because they're both, they're both very important. Musically, I have a good ear for melody. Um, and I can never explain to any, the one thing I can't explain is how to write a melody, because it's something I never had to learn. It was just an innate thing. I can write melodies, pretty decent melodies, without a lot of thought. And, you know, stuff like putting a set of chords around a vocal, I you, I feel like I have a pretty instinctive grasp of what is mm. going to make a vocal sound good and like what what to place around it um which is usually simple i think a lot of people over complicate that stuff so i think that is a strength um and then on the marketing side i'm i've usually been good at crafting a coherent message about who i am and what i stand for and essentially what the artistic project is about and that's really important as well right i think people need to be able to get on board with it's not just liking the music people want to be invested in the artist it's an aesthetic it, it's it, an aesthetic it, it's an thing it's a, yeah yeah and, I, and, I've, and i've been good over the years and it has changed over the years it's different to what it was 10 years ago but i've been able to create a project that people wanted to, to passionately support on the disadvantages i'm not that great a producer which is weird because i've produced well, no, I'm not that great an engineer. And in dance music, engineering right. is very, very important. And for me, spending like six hours like tuning a hi-hat or a kick drum I just, just kills me. And um, I don't have a passion for it. And for a long time, I would insist on doing 100% of the process myself, which meant spending a lot of time in bits of the process I wasn't very good at. And then about like three, four years ago, I was like, you know what? Like I... This is just not engineering, is just not my strength. I've written all the music, like I've done the production, I've written the chords, I've done the riff and stuff. Let's bring in somebody else who's much because they can often do in a day what would take me two weeks. So mm, it's yep. a bit, so that's a bit of a weakness. And um, I guess my like my only other weakness, um, and maybe this is not a weakness, but you, you you can tell me. Like I try and be as authentic as possible all the time. Like I like to write my own social oh, that's media. That's not a weakness. Okay, that's well, a cop out. That's a cop out on well, a weakness. So, no, but like it, it definitely leads you to not having as big a career as you could do. Like, there's no doubt that if you're willing to sell out at every step. So, friend, like I would never post like just stupid example. Never wanted to post memes on my social media. Right? For me, it was like my artistic project, my voice. I don't want to post mm. stupid memes, regardless of how many likes and followers it might ultimately get me. And there are people in making dance music who've built up like 
far bigger followers than me by like posting memes. And mm. um, but for me, regardless of like how much success it might get me, that was never like a route I wanted to take. And I've and there's been like a lot of things where I've been like, you know what, if I wanted to cut that corner, if I wanted to make that sacrifice, there probably would have been more success, but only in terms of like financial success, not any of the success that, that I, I really valued. So um, yeah, it probably comes it probably comes down to your roots, guys. You just like look. I'd, I didn't send off 10,000 jiffy bags to just start posting memes on my pages. So you get you get to your you get to the stage then where um so you're in Manchester at this point then and and you've had the call and you you get signed and and this seems to be sort of 2 3 years how how does it feel when you get signed? What's the dynamic that changes as as an at the time, you know, young producer, young artist, yeah. you just signed the deal. Walk me through the emotion, walk me through what happens when you get signed. Well, yeah, so I was paid, I think, in advance of £500, which is a good advance, to be honest. And um, I think for Rock one single dance music record still would be quite a decent advance these days. And um, the biggest difference was when the record was promoted, it was coming from a trusted source. Um, whereas before, it was like me sending out records with like labels that I'd printed myself, um, which was stuck on by me on my family in the living room in front of Coronation Street. So, yeah, when it was coming from... And and this is the other thing. um, A lot, at least in dance music, and the same goes for, like, journalists and stuff, us artists have trusted sources of good music. There are some record labels who send me music and there are some people that send me music and I know it's always going to be good. There are other people who send me music and I know it's usually going to be shit. And if you know mm. it's going to be shit, you do tune out after a while and you and you kind of stop listening. So it's another bit of advice. Like, don't hit the same label every fucking week with new stuff. Like, if it's a no, go back and wait six months and get a load better and make sure it's sufficiently different because otherwise people will just stop listening to what you're sending and then you may make something good and then it becomes hard to get it heard. Anyway, um, the fact that I signed to a label meant the records then were being sent out with credentials. The fact they weren't coming from me, they were coming from a legit label that everybody had heard of, just meant that when the records were arriving at DJs, it was like, oh, wow, more 5am. This stuff's usually good, as opposed to like records from, from, from some kid. Um, honestly, there was no... And this is not a good thing, but like there was no celebration on my side. There was no like I've I've done a deal. There was no like whoa, let's let's go out and get drunk. It was just the natural next step in the process, and I was on to the next fucking thing. And like for large portions of my career, like particularly when good things have happened, there's been no celebration. Whether it was like selling my first like five thousand tickets or my first iTunes number one album, it was like bang, done, on to the next. That's not a good way to be and I wouldn't recommend it. Now I try and slow down and celebrate. But back then it's it's how it was. I kinda I kinda like it though. I <clears throat> I really vibe with that for for one main reason because when you whenever you have those moments of real achievement, it seems that you have never like rested on your laurels it's like there's so many people in that moment that would have got that 500 quid uh, advance they would have been popping the champagne they would have been out they would have been i mean i don't know what you're gonna buy for 500 quid but you, you know what i mean it's like the classic story isn't it it's like yeah. we've got signed we've made it and uh from all the experience that i've had with all the people that that are in my networks and, and you're obviously such a testament to that too is like 
the day you get signed, it's like, that's when the work starts. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily something to be like, yeah, brilliant. We've now got this engine behind us that's going to take us forward. It's like, no, that's that's almost like you're starting. That's day one. Uh, so I think that, obviously, I, I hear what you're saying with, with that ethos that you do have to take the breath. You do have to take the the you know the the few minutes you have to have the meditation you have to sit and be appreciative of the things that you have achieved but there is no point really is there in in celebrating for for the fact that you know you've you've you you're you're just beginning the next step off a off another considered journey and yeah. that seems to be how you've lived your life so far no i wouldn't have taken a week holiday even with hindsight what i probably would have done though in all honesty and this is what i would recommend I would have liked to have just sat down when I did that first deal and just sat in the garden or whatever and just looked out and remembered back that like three or four years ago, it was the 10,000 Jiffy bags and, you know, how far I'd had to come to get to that point and go, well fucking done. Look at where we've come from. Look at where we are. And even just like a 10 or 15 minute little moment of introspection was kind of, a, would have been, I think, a good thing to do. And I very much do do that now when, when we have like even small wins. But yeah, that took me like a good 15 years to start doing that. And even like, you know, when I released my first artist album and it was immediately an iTunes number one in 15 or 20 different countries, which was an amazing achievement for me to have. We were still an independent artist at that point. Um, but I had so much going on around there, like I was going on tour the next day and we were working on like the remix album and, you know, I was buying a house at the same time and it was literally, oh, we got number one, amazing. Posted on social media. Yeah, we've posted on Facebook. Okay, brilliant. And like that literally, it was like a one minute thing in, in, in the office. And I I guess now looking back, I, I wish I'd enjoyed those moments a bit more. But like you say, you don't want to be that guy or girl who had one bit of success and have kind of lived on it since then. And the music industry, as we know, is full of them. The people that got that one deal, they got that one gig, they had that one moment and they will spend the rest of their fucking lives talking about it. And um, that yeah, that's probably not where you want to end up. Yeah, I think that there's going to be so many people listening, maybe even outside of music, um, that are going to know exactly what that feels like. Some of the biggest moments in our lives these days seem to just go like a blink that they're, they're never quite what we expect them to be because we're always imagining what it's going to be in the future and then we kind of skip through that little bit of present and then we're remembering something that's that's past gone and you know you mentioned that that there are some forms of mantra now that you have like you are you a, you're a meditator you you're someone who's kind of considers this stuff now more in in where you're at now yeah I, i'm meditate pretty much every day for 20 minutes and i've tried various forms of mindfulness and, and actually for anybody that's getting into it now, I wouldn't re recommend meditation as the starter because it's tricky and it's not always satisfying. What got me into it was a routine called priming. It's uh, by a guy called Tony Robbins, very famous. Yeah, probably I know the, the guy, yeah. Yeah, probably the most famous kind of self-development sort of coach guru. And he has a routine called priming. And um, it's a 15-minute thing. You'll be able to find a guide on YouTube. And it's what he does to get himself in kind of a peak state to attack the day. And that's what I did for the first two years. Very, very effective. Um, and then I kind of switched over to like a more formal meditation practice, which I do it every day, pretty much every day, 20 minutes. Um, and in, amongst other things, it makes you much better at being able to slow down and appreciate those moments. And actually probably the biggest benefit 
it's allowed me to be present during shows because and I think I said that's this a to, big one. That's a huge one, man. Yeah, and I, I think I said this to you when you had your first. It was a really. I think it was was it the first thousand capacity you'd done, maybe. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. I think we were talking just after I'd done uh, Islington Assembly Hall. So that was my first like one thousand cap room in London. And I think and, I, I think I said, yeah. said to you before, and you, I think you said, do you have any advice for doing these big shows? And I was like, don't expect to enjoy it too much. If you do, that's going to be amazing. But for me. For the for years of playing big shows, especially big festivals, I didn't really enjoy the sets. You know, I would because before it's nerves and it's build up. You're getting your music ready. I'm trying to think about production. Then you're getting on stage, and I'm just hoping everything works. You're twenty thousand people out there. Is the equipment working? Is the production working? Has the smoke go off on time? Are our lasers working? Everything in my head is kind of like this very fast real-time problem solving to provide the best possible experience for the crowd in front. And then usually there'd be about three minutes at the end where I was like, oh, wow, we've pulled this off. This is fucking amazing. They've had a great time. <laughs> nothing went there's, wrong. Yeah, there's 20,000 <laughs> people, they're going crazy. And then bang, it's over. The next artist comes and I'm off and the celebration. And then I'd kind of tr- like like celebrate. And it was only really with meditation that allowed me much earlier in the sets to get like, I'd get 10 minutes in and I could stop and stop my mind from like constantly worrying and look out and go wow there are 20,000 people out there enjoy it breathe I'm only going to experience this once and that goes for any show I will never experience that show again regardless of whether it's good or shit big or small it's a one-time experience look out remember it breathe it in absorb it and and feel grateful for it and uh, meditation was was what allowed me to do that You'd be you'd be happy to know that that very show um, when I was backstage, and, I, and I'm not making this up either. Like since we spoke, I'm trying to remember when that was. It was in LA sometime last year. But I I actually did. I took ten minutes. I put on some just chill music, sat, meditated, processed it. I I thought through the fact that I'd got to that milestone. I I I, I could feel the energy of the room uh, across the other side of the stage, and and I did. I I really really did. I um. I really just zoned down, really took took that time to appreciate it. And and I have you to thank for that. And it's and it's just a massive lesson because I know what I'm like and I would have done exactly the same thing. I would have been speaking to the tour manager. Is the conf- are the confetti cannons, you know, wired yeah. yet? Did we fix the problem with the, with the LEDs on the sun strips? You know, is are our monitors working okay? Has the mix changed? Have we lied? That's me all over. And I think that um yeah, it was a massive lesson for me to to take that, and I'm and I'm glad that you kind of took the time and going through that story for people listening. It's just, it is vital because we we do have this tendency, especially with the social media, especially with with those who are listening who are in the independent music scene. Your plate's full. You're always walking around with this like, you know, plate with things falling off and shit going wrong. Uh, and if you're not careful, you kind of just miss stuff. Um, yeah, and, and you would have been rushed on stage, right? It would have been like right up to the last minute, confetti mix. Oh, there's people on the guest list that can't get in. You're like, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, I've literally been there. Like, <laughs> yeah. like get them in. So like, true. moments before going on yeah. stage. Are you in? Are you in? No, no, we're still out. So get these fucking people in. Time to get on stage. And like, hmm. I. what it also does is, though, if you know you plan to take that time, you make sure shit is working just a little bit earlier. And it's so nice. I'm so glad you did that, right? It's fucking important. It's just so nice to go like, you know what? I have done everything I can. I've worked on this show 
sometimes for six months. So much work has been done over the last six months to get to that point. And like on our laser face shows, we'd have a crew of, you know, so 25, 30 people working on those shows. All are highly competent. And I have to go to myself. There's only so much you can do. You can take these 10 minutes. You've got a really fucking great team. Everything's taken care of. Take the 10 minutes and in, and enjoy and enjoy the show. And um, I'm, le- I think learning that early is going to be a great thing for you. Because also, when something does go wrong, it's much nicer when you've had that little moment and like chilled out. You deal with it much better than when it kind of like mm. takes you, when it takes you by surprise. And things will always go wrong in live shows. It's kind of a lot of moving parts. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I definitely, there's so much I want to touch on with, with the laser face stuff and things that you're doing when it comes to that level of production. But we, we're going we're gonna to rewind really slightly and carry yeah, yeah. on with the, with the story because you're, you're, you're in Manchester, you've been signed now, you, you know, the work's kind of begun, the yeah. guys are starting to play your record. At what point and, and why did you kind of uproot and take the journey to, to Los Angeles? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Manchester was also like I grew up in Southampton. I moved to Manchester because um, it's where my wife was from, uh, where her family were, and I, and I love Manchester. It became my ado- adopted home. And actually, my time in Manchester was when I really things had kind of taken off when I was living in Southampton, but I'd not cracked the UK. And usually, if you're from the UK, the UK is the hardest place to crack. And there was a period. Yeah. In, there's a period when. I was beginning to get great recognition overseas, but in the UK, nobody really gave a shit. It's always harder in your own in your own country, especially for us Brits. And in Manchester, I started running a, a, again. Like this is a running theme in my career. I was getting great shows everywhere, but not in the UK. And then when I moved to Manchester, we started doing shows at a nightclub there. Really great nightclub. And I kind of realised if other people weren't going to give me good bookings, I'll start my own fucking night. So I started my own Rock night. Rock and roll. Yeah. That's what we want to hear. I just did it myself, right? And I was I was lucky that we moved there at the right time. I had an office in the same building as this legendary nightclub called Sankey's was. And I was booking like the likes of Above and Beyond, but I was the support act. And because it was my show, I could kind of make sure I had that prime slot and i could kind of you know take a few of their fans over over to my side and that was kind of how i cracked the uk so eventually after that then people started recognizing me as like you know having some fans and and being a legitimate act and then i started getting other good uk bookings as well and 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 so those shows kind of had had, had done what they were supposed to um i think in terms of moving to la Around 2010, 2011, America really got dance music. And up until that point, the US was not particularly big for electronic music, which is bizarre because it was invented here in sort of Detroit and Chicago. This is where it all started. But for most of my career, wasn't that big a thing. And I used to go to LA in like 2005, 2006, and I would play to like 30 people. None of them knew who I was. None of them gave a shit. And it was kind of like... Yeah, I like going to LA because it's a fun place and it's sunny, but the gigs are fucking shit. And um, I remember in 2010, I played a festival here in the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. It's a 100,000-seater stadium, Electric Daisy Carnival, which is now in Las Vegas. And um, just seeing a 100,000-person festival, I was like, shit, the Americans are suddenly getting electronic music. And... In America, when they do things, they do tend to do it pretty big. 
Um, and once America had caught the like electronic music bug, it was very clear that things were going to go bonkers, not just because of the American tendency of, of going big, but also just this big country, right? You know, mm. nearly over 250 million people, a um, lot, of, lot of big cities. And for a few years, I was doing so much touring in America. I would fly to the States twice a month, um, fly out on a Thursday, play shows Thursday, Friday, Saturday, fly back Sunday, get back to Manchester Monday morning, have like two days to open letters and maybe make a few changes, then back out to the States. And I, like I, in those years, I was like one of, I think, BA's like top like 300 flyers worldwide. So I was literally just always flying to and from the States. And I was like, you know what? I really enjoy being there. Um, I'm going there a crazy amount to play shows anyway. Why not move there? And um, my who is the cat who is now my wife and my girlfriend at the time, she was up for giving it a crack. And we said, let's go do six months and see, see how it goes. So we rented a house in LA for six months. And uh, seven, years, seven years later, we're still here. What a journey. Yeah, it's been fun. And then, like, now we have like two American kids and stuff. So we're like, you know, somewhat, mm. somewhat kind of like, like locked, locked in. But um, well, they are, they are, they're two of my favorite people. They are the cutest <laughs> kids, aren't they? They're such sweethearts. They're awesome. Absolute yeah. legends. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when, when, especially people in music, they're going to be hearing you talk about the plane rides, the, the nights, the, the touring around the world. They're just going to be so enamored by it. I mean, anyone would be like, but what what was it like when you were going through that process? Because it feels like something that, as much as it sounds and is incredible, yeah. that must have taken its toll as well. That must have been tricky. No, it was brutal. And in those years, like once I moved to the States, the travel just became a lot easier because mm. all of a sudden, 70% of my gigs were in America and I could take internal flights. And even if I do a gig in New York, you know, I'll go and play New York on a Saturday night leave New York at, say, 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. It's a six-hour flight, but then you get three hours back. So I'm back in Los Angeles, a home with the kids, at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, which is amazing. So the travel is very, very easy when you're just touring the United States. Those years where I was going from the U.K. to the U.S. every single week were just insane. I mean, because I was also, like, I, I was drinking. I was, like, part which I don't do a lot of these days, but I was, like, drinking. I was partying, like... And again, that for me, I wish I'd taken the time and gone, man, like you're living the fucking dream. Um, I was also a complete workaholic. Like I was literally working 24-7. I was drinking, I was partying, I was playing 13, 14 shows a month. And that was like good, good three years of my life. And those years just went by in a flash. Lost and and they, it wasn't all positive, right? There was a lot of amazing shows and a lot of amaz- amazing work-based achievements. But I turned into a bit of a dick, as I think anybody that, even though I'd been in the industry for a while, the money I was making went fucking crazy. My fame level just dramatically accelerated, and I think anybody that gets a lot of money or fame overnight probably turns into a bit of a dickhead and starts believing their own hype for a while. And that that certainly happened to me. And you know, I didn't see my my um my dad very often i lost contact with like my old school friends and stuff and it was only really when i came up for air like three or four years later i was like shit man i'm trying to like reconnect with the real world a little bit i I just love the honesty it's like it's i think that's one of the things i find fascinating about you You just like yeah i turned into a dick you know you made a ton of money 
Uh, and you know, and fucking hell, who wouldn't? It's like it, you become some super famous rock star DJ flying around the world. God knows what people are trying to shove up your nose twenty four seven. It's like the, It's like I. Yeah, I, I can. I can see it. But like when I, I, I didn't normally need people shoving for me, but like we'll. we'll say. <laughs> but like it's you just learn so much from it though. Do you know what I mean? And it's like when you when you were down that road, like for those who for those of us who aren't going to experience what it's like to do that dizzying heights thing can you is there any way of unpacking like why you became a dickhead like what oh, was yeah. it about it that made you feel like you became that and and what was it like I, it's a weird question i know but like could you try it like, no no I, I i definitely can because i've i've been writing like a book of sorts about some of these years just so i wanted to like document them and not forget them so i've kind of unpacked a lot of this stuff in 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 writing the sort of draft for mm. that book like honestly a lot of it, I didn't have gratitude, right? I did not have an appreciation for the situation I was in. For me, it was like bigger, better. I want bigger gigs. I want better fucking flights on the plane. That's kind of... And when you're always looking for more, that can go to a dark place. But I'll, I'll tell you how it happened and how it started. Because I remember it pretty clearly. I was off doing a festival in Poland. And... A lot of big DJs were on the festival and I was feeling pretty good. My career was taking off. I was excited to play the show. I was, I was making it. And at the airport, I'm there like standing in line for security in economy. And then all of a sudden, like I see like Pete Tong, Sasha, Sven Varf, all these big old school DJs just breeze past me straight down the business class lane. And... Motherfuckers. Yeah. What, it, uh, what absolute arseholes to do something like that to you. Yeah. And like, I think at that point, like my, I wasn't like, oh, I'm still lucky to be doing this gig. I was like, they've got that. I want that. Yeah. And then like, I get on the plane and they're all sat comfortably in business class and they're all, I remember getting on the plane and they're all there. T- and it may not be in those exact DJs, but it was like a, a bunch of like big old school DJs were playing this festival. And they're all there chatting business and stuff. So I walk on the plane. I'm just hearing these tantalising. Yes, yeah, so we was doing a deal at Universal. And he said, send. And I was like, oh, I want this. This is where I want to be. And they're like, move along, sir, move along. So they're there supping champagne and eating peanuts and having these great conversations, these like titans of industry. And down I go to the back of the plane to be sandwiched in a middle fucking seat. Um... But and like, like right at the back. So, of course, at that point, I'm like, I want to be in business class. This is what I want now. And when your aspirations become about material things, that's when you can become a dick. So I made a bit more money. And about nine months later, I was able to start flying business class, um, and which was amazing. It's much more expensive than economy. But I was very determined I was going to earn the money so I no longer had to fly economy. But on my initial business class flights, and this is where the reality can disconnect from your visualization, I'd imagine myself strolling in with Pete Tong and Sasha and, and sort of being, being one of the gang. In reality, though, I didn't look like I should have been flying business class because like I was still in a Ben Sherman shirt with a fucking backpack. So what would happen is I get to the front of the line and it's like, excuse me, sir, this is the business class lane. The economy class lane is over there. So I was like, oh, shit, well, this was rubbish. I've I've got all the money to do it, but now it's it's shit because, like, people just don't think I belong. So then I'm like, right, I need to get some clothes that look suitable in business class. So I stopped shopping at, like, River Island and Topshop. They'd serve me well. 
No idea why I abandoned them. Served me well since I was 15. And then I'm like, well, I'm going to Harvey Nicks because like I was making money at that point. So I'd walk into Harvey Nicks and buy stupid sunglasses and stupid jeans and, and stupid jackets. Um, so then I could rock up to the business class lane, like dressed in all this expensive shit. And I think you just see the path. And then I just continue down that path. Right. Mm. And even though my art was still important to me, I had a desire to be in business class, to be wearing like expensive shit, to be seen as like making it. And I don't even know who to, like probably people I didn't even fucking know. Like I wanted to be in business class looking like a fucking rock star or, or, or whatever. And that kind of spread to other areas of of my professional life, right? So I guess I started believing the hype about myself. I started thinking I was this great fucking DJ or whatever, so when there was like a billing issue where I couldn't get top bill on the flyer, I would like kick off about it and go like, give me top bill or I'll, or I'll cancel the fucking show. And this is actually pretty standard behavior in, in electronic music. It's, it's horrendous. I can say it's horrendous now because I don't generally try and indulge these sort of games. But at the time, there was so much money in electronic music. These sort of excesses were quite normal. And like there, you'd hear stories about like, you know, these like superstar DJs, be it Swedish House Mafia or whoever, like cancelling a gig because the wrong car had been sent to pick them up. It was supposed to be a Cadillac Escalade and somebody sent like a BMW X5. Like like the this was the level of excess that was in electronic music at, at, at that point and just got swept along with it in all, in all honesty. And... Um, it's weird to hear you talk about it because it's it's just so not you. Like yeah. I cannot imagine you being like that. I can't imagine... I just can't see it. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's interesting to hear about that journey and like what do you remember? So you you kind of gone through that process of falling into it, and do you remember the the climb out of it? Oh yeah, yeah, very clearly. I mean, I yeah, <laughs> I think what happened was, and this was a big change for me. I I did a residency deal. Well, I think the first thing becoming a parent is a massive change. That's going to change everybody in many ways, usually for the better. And it definitely did for me. I also did a residency deal in Las Vegas that kind of went to shit. And I was, it was like 2015. And um, I left the club I'd been playing at for years and years and went to this new one that had opened. And they paid me a lot of money. But their casino really struggled. And the shows were always pretty crap, right? Like I'd gone from playing to thousands every week at the best club in Las Vegas to 50 or 100. Still getting paid great money. But I was doing these, these gigs that were pretty crap. And that really showed me that money was not the most important thing. I was like, here I am making the highest nightly wages I've ever made, but doing something extremely dissatisfying because the gigs were not Mm. good. And I was thinking, would I rather this or would I rather go and play for £500 to, you know, a packed, sweaty house in Manchester? I'd want the packed, sweaty house in Manchester. So that was how I began to kind of reconnect with reality in like in like a professional sense, realizing there was there was much more to it than than money, and I, I just kind of got swept up in it. And I think in terms of like like material possessions, most people never get. I, I don't, here, the sad thing is this: if everybody in the world got to be really fucking rich for one point of their lives, we would have a lot less materialism. Because we have this narrative 
that this stuff makes you happy, whether it's like a big TV or a big house or like mm. fucking fancy cars or whatever. And when I was making crazy money, I made sure I tested every one of those assumptions. I had a fucking Lamborghini, <laughs> Rolls Royce, like fucking expensive, wa- expensive watches and shit. And just um, yeah, <laughs> just got, a, yeah, no, I, I was like swept up in it. And honestly, don't make, don't make you fucking happy. And I, I, t- I had to do that to learn. I haven't, I don't even have a car now. I've not had a car for two years. I just take Ubers and borrow my wife's and I'm more happy than when I had a fucking stupid Rolls Royce sat in the drive. So I think a lot of it I've was got ju- a, I, I've got a question, right? Do you think that people can hear a story like that and, and take it for what it's worth and it can change their opinion? Or do you think that this is something that people fundamentally have to learn on their on their own? Is this? Do you, do you know what I mean by that? I think it can go both ways. I think if I'd heard my story, I'm not saying I wouldn't have indulged in some excesses. I probably mm. wouldn't have carried on thinking it was going to deliver positive change. I, I probably would have stopped after the Lamborghini. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because that was something I'd wanted since I was 15. I did it. It didn't really make me very happy. That probably would have been the end of it for me. But um, because I'd never really had this lesson explained or I'd never looked for it, I went nuts for, 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 quite, for quite a bit longer. But, you know, it's nice to come out the other side with some level of, I don't want to use the word enlightenment because it far overstates the journey. But... I think people can kind of see it at any level, right? Like I never had like my own private Jeff, for instance, but I can tell you right now, it would not make me particularly, it would not make me any happier than I currently am. Hmm. And that's a, that's a huge, that's a huge thing because, you know, as an artist, there's lots of people watching. I've felt the same. I've been through similar stuff. You know, you, you're always out there thinking, you know, how cool is it going to be when you get to play the O2 and you're and you're flying around in private jets and you've got like gold on your arm and it, it's just like, yeah, I, I'm 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 lucky. I think I've I haven't been tempted too badly uh, by that whole process, but I I feel everything you say. I really feel it. I can. I just love the honesty as well, and I hope people listening can like just get in that mindset of what it must have been like for for Gareth Emery, you know, Southampton boy, all of a sudden just like balling in a roller in the middle of Los Angeles on a on a on a fucking house overlooking the city. So like, like it was like honestly, like if you were in dance music and you were a big act between twenty two thousand eight and like two thousand and like fourteen, it was it was almost like being a lottery winner because you weren't really changing what you were doing, but mm. you could make in one night what you would have made in a year five years previously so all of us it it just it just went nuts and you hadn't really changed that much just the demand went bonkers and yeah i think like but i think anybody can look at their own lives and they can kind of say like you know say you remember when you upgraded like a shit car to a good car how much happiness did the good car bring you? Was it fairly fleeting? Like, was it like amazing when you got it? Then it, then you just got used to it, lasted a few weeks? Probably. Doesn't matter how high up the chain you get, it's still a fairly fleeting thing. And honestly, the things that do deliver happiness and fulfilment, pretty much the same now as they were when I fucking started, writing good music, like good times, with, in nice interactions with other people. Yeah, having a great crowd in front of you, playing the music you've made to a crowd that appreciates it 
Absolutely. That is a wonderful gift and is as much of a gift now as it was now 10 years ago. But material stuff. Um, and, and by the way, there's honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And I'm not saying don't enjoy your money. Don't go out and buy fancy stuff. I like I don't have a car, but I will still buy some cool shit every now and again. Not like cars and clothes, but like I've, I've nothing against people spending their money. It would be hugely hypocritical. And that stuff can be cool. But don't think it is going to bring you happiness. You need to find happiness and fulfillment in other areas of your life. And once you've done that, have a bit of fun with your money. Yeah, fucking cool. Well, I remember you. I remember you unpacking this this idea, this concept. I, I think this is something you must have been through a few times because you've got quite a solidified ideology on it. It's like every time that those things come into play, when the money comes into play, when the drugs come into play and the traveling comes into play, it's like all of a sudden you're very quickly, um, even if it might be, you know, a couple of nights a week when you're going out as opposed to working on, on music or something that yeah. you're enjoying or connecting with people in a session. It's like you you went through that process of thinking like, well, what is the iterative effect of having many, many weeks now where we're like, off the grid, like hungover, like how does that impact the music you're making? How does that impact your career? And it's and it's interesting that you're you've kind of got yourself quite set in how you feel about that, you know? Yeah, massively. And like the more success you have, the more things that will come into your life that drag your time away from what should be your core business of being in the studio and, and making tunes or, or writing songs, whatever your core business is. So. You know, well, like, I suppose it's 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 interesting because it's obviously the core business as well as your like emotional well being because like you say, you know, and when you're in the studio and you're, and you're working towards something, you're creating music. It's a struggle, but there's a challenge. There's a process involved of accomplishment, and I think that that's where. Uh, and I mean, look, I'm I'm speaking for you, but like it must be for you as it is for me. Is like you have a real grounding of happiness and fulfillment in that basic stuff. That's why you're in music. So you start yeah. becoming detracted, right? No, and I take that so seriously. I log all my hours spent making music to make sure I'm doing enough. Because there are periods of large amounts of time when like, like say life was like flights, hotels, gigs, interviews. And before you know it, months go by and you've not written a note of music. That's just the world you mm. end up living in. And um, I will log in an app called Tally every 30 minute block I spend writing music. And I don't, try and do a huge like I, I don't go for like I'm not trying to do like 10 hour days for me my target mm. is two hours a day five days a week just 10 hours spent on music <clears throat> and then often that will lead to much more but as long as I do that I'll make good music I'll keep myself sort of grounded um and just logging it means I don't have to guess and I can't kid myself and go yeah I spent some studio time last month it's laid out clearly in front of me there's my target for the year and there's where I'm at. There's where I'm at. Is that something that you would recommend <clears throat> for for younger musicians, artists that that they? I actually think that what you've just said there is is huge. By the way, because I I, I don't do this, but like that's another like little bombshell of advice for me that I really think is important. Because I can't tell you how many times I jump in the studio. I'm sitting at the keys and, and I have a, like a little bit of a period where something's not quite gelling. I'm, I'm on Instagram. The next yeah, minute, yeah. like half an hour's gone, maybe an hour's gone. <clears> and it's just like, you think, okay, well, maybe that was just one day. But then the second day might be the same, the third and the fourth. And maybe six months goes past and you've just like hacked your chances of success in half because you weren't applying the time 
where it needed to be. Well, there's yeah, I think there's two facets to that. The f- and I've thought about this stuff a lot, I and mean, I've had to in order to continue making music in a social media world, which is not always easy. I think the first is that consistency is much more important than kind of intensity. So give me two hours every day as opposed to like one crazy 16-hour session because research has shown most of us only get two or three hours a day when we're capable of our best work. After that, there's kind of a diminishing return. And that's certainly the case with me. First two or three hours in the studio, I'm pretty good. Then after that, I start to lose some perspective in terms of what I'm hearing. I start to zone out a bit. So for me, I just try and maximise that first bit and then I'm I'm done for the day. Um, Secondly, being able to focus and like a lot of my albums when I'm in the studio, either the phone is on airplane mode until those two hours are done or I've got like a like a a dumb phone, right? So like an old BlackBerry that doesn't go on the internet. So I have something that if somebody needs me in an emergency, they've got it, but I don't Mm. have access to Instagram. I don't have access to any of my normal social media. And we could go down a rabbit hole here. I I think on the social media front, safe to say these technologies are unbelievably addictive. And I think most people listening probably know that. Like if you've experienced them, you know they're addictive. Like Mm. they are designed to get you coming back as often as possible and to maximize the length of your visits. That's how these companies make money. And they're remarkably clever at showing you the right things to keep you there. And there's a great podcast called Your Undivided Attention. And it's by by a nonprofit called the Center for Humane Technology, which kind of like looks into all this stuff. If you're interested in this stuff, it's a really fascinating listen. You know, I think I've heard this. This, Are these the guys who basically blew the whistle that they were like strapping up 14-year-old kids to like dopamine measurement machines to see how much they were going to wait for Instagram likes and stuff to like creepy shit? Exactly. And and, and when you realise how the world's best engineers and behavioural scientists are stacking the deck against you to try and stop you from leaving their platforms, then you realise you have to defend yourself. You have to defend your attention. So even when I'm not in a, in like an album run, I have like screen time on my phone. I have pretty strict limits to how, like, again, I'm going to sound fucking crazy, but this is just what works for me. I have a really addictive personality. So like I, I could easily spend two hours on Instagram in a day if if I allowed myself. So I have screen time and I have like a limit of like 15 minutes, I think, on Instagram. And then I need a code. And that code lives on a bit of paper. It's not in my brain, which is inside my phone case. So when I hit my limit, it's like you're blocked out. You need the code to continue. Now, if I'm just fucking around, let's say I'm like looking at, I don't know, like I'm watching your stories. I'm probably not going to go and get the code out to continue watching because it's a hassle taking the phone out of the case. But if I'm doing some valuable work where I do actually need, like, I don't know, I'm posting myself. Okay, then I I can like break the glass, get the code out and have a bit of emergency <laughs> access. And um, that's really helped him this out. Is, guys, this is, this is what I'm telling you about this man. He's got the answers. He's figured <laughs> shit out. Everyone listening to this right now is just going to be sitting there going, 15 minutes? They're, go- they're, they're sitting listening to you admitting to doing two hours on Instagram being like, <clears throat> I'll fucking do that. <laughs> Times yeah, well, 10. Of course. T- take five hours on Instagram on a weekend. Yeah, of course we do. And like, I, you know, my phone is very boring because and often like 
I might wake up after, and when I go to bed for the night, my phone is in a different room, but like, I might wake up after, let's say I have a nap, my phone's on the bedside table, and I pick it up, and like, we, I think a lot of people these days like being on their phone in bed, and I used to like that very mm. much too. On mine, there is literally nothing to do. I'll pick it up, Instagram's locked out, I haven't got Facebook on it, I haven't got Twitter on it. Any place I like to waste time on the internet is also blocked to like some sort of limit a day. Often, all I can do is load my Amazon Kindle app and read a bit of a book. <laughs> like that is literally all I can do, which I'll do for like five minutes and then I'll get up and get on with my day. And that's the difference. Like I'm fine like with doing stuff like reading a book on my phone because that book is not developed to keep me there as, as, as long as possible. I'll just give one example, by the way, of, of how this stuff works because I think it is interesting. Um, so on YouTube... Obviously, everything you do is, is is tracked by the algorithm, right? How long mm. you spend watching a video, um, you know, when you pause, when you play, what recommendations you follow. And YouTube, when you say when you're on YouTube, literally builds up a little virtual um, Markovic in YouTube system, which acts the same way you do. They take all your behaviours and they literally build up a virtual version of you because they know how you act and the virtual version acts pretty fucking accurately like you because they've got, you know, hundreds of hours of your behaviour to base it on. And then what they do is they take that virtual version of you and they show it 10,000 videos and see which ones it turns off on and which ones it keeps watching on. And basically, whichever video is most like, and obviously because it's virtual, this can happen in a split second. And whichever mm -hmm. video is most likely to keep the virtual version of you watching, the little like Markovic that they made in their servers, that's the one the real Markovic is seeing next. Mate. I, you know what, I, I have, I've done similar reading, and and it's so good to to talk about this stuff because one of one of the things that's strange is, for so many people listening, just would never think that someone would go to that level to manipulate you, would you? You would never think that the greatest minds in the world, <clears throat> the best engineers, the best software designers, we're talking like twelve dimensional arrays of behavior measuring. It's the level of scrutiny when it comes to manipulating people nowadays is shocking and i mean it must feel weird especially when you've got kids on the ipads with the, with the programs measuring what they're doing it must be strange now as a dad as well no like the best i mean my kids are a little bit young to really get hooked too much into the algorithm but like it is crazy that the best some of the best scientists in the world they're not launching rockets or trying to find a cure for cancer they're working out mm the best way how to how to stop you from closing instagram how to shove ads in your face that's exactly it yeah. we have to remember this is not social media of like of 2006 2007 mm. when it was like about connecting friends these are like multi-billion dollar businesses some of the biggest businesses in the fucking world and because they're all free the way they make money is via advertising and they've got very very good at it and and again something like the center for humane technology podcast they go a lot into, is it right? How would some sort of regulation look like? Um, and to me, well, do I mean, you think it? Do you think it might be like what we saw with like smoking? You know, you know. Yeah, what I, mean? I, Maybe... I, per I, I personally do actually. Yeah, I would mm. say in fifteen twenty years time, the way we sold 
and bartered with the attention of the human race in an almost unregulated way will be seen like the way smoking um, will be seen like smoking. And, you know, it's clear when you look out in the world, we've got a fucking problem. You walk to a restaurant, everyone's on their phones, like people come out for dinner together and they're just there looking at their phones, not talking. Every time I drive my car, people just wander into the road, just cross the road. They're looking at their phone and and, and nearly get knocked over. Like it's, blindingly fucking obvious if you put the thing down for a second and look out in the world like they've got us hooked on this there is a real problem and yeah i think at some point it will be like smoking um but i don't try and get too heavily into the debate is it right i mean i believe i do believe it's a little bit wrong but i'm not there to have a debate i'm not there to try and convince people what i am there to do is is defend my own time because i'll tell you what If you can work out how to minimize your time on these incredibly addictive devices, you have an advantage immediately over about 95% of people because 95% of the world are hopelessly addicted on the fucking dopamine pellet dispenser and they don't even know it. They're not even questioning it. So the moment you just move into that 5% that even questions it and goes, yeah, maybe I do want to reduce the amount of time I spend on that stuff. You've immediately got an amazing competitive advantage. And when it comes to making it in the music business or any other tough business, you take every fucking advantage that you can. Man, I, I genuinely feel inspired. I'm going to get the apps. I'm going to get the screen time thing. I'm done. Instagram's going. But no, this, this is exactly... Sorry, go on, mate. Yeah, the, ch- I mean, the challenge for you and for me is also like, obviously in a professional sense, we need to use these things. We need to be good at it. So it's a trade-off. And you go, how can I still do the good job I need on social media to grow as an artist whilst also saving enough time for my art because right now most of the music business they're too like most artists are too much on social media um and i think that affects the art badly and you can probably spend like i can spend less time on instagram than most people because i have a team that helps with social media posts but honestly even if you've got nobody else helping you like talking to like up-and-coming artists you should be able to get your shit done and get out of there in about 30 minutes yeah, there's something there's something really fascinating on that note. Just as you were talking, I thought um, when when it comes to artists and our and our obsession with getting across social media and making sure we've got our visibility, there's this yeah. interesting um, shift what's happening right now. And, and I'll try my best to explain it because it's not really that solid in my mind. But recently, I, I came across this song. You know, a lot of people are going to know it. It's a song called uh, "This City" by Sam Fisher. It's just okay. a fucking amazing, amazing song. And it's funny how this guy, whoever he is, because I, I hadn't heard of him no, two weeks prior, he made a bit of art that was so great. The first thing I wanted to do was get on a mic and do a little cover of it and chuck it to my, you know, however many thousand followers out there. Yeah, yeah. And what, what I noticed is like the machine for propagating great information has never been more oiled. So it's almost like I realized in that moment, like, fuck going on like TikTok and Instagram and Snap and like Twitter and Facebook and constantly trying to like garner the attention. It's like if you make something that's great, that's really, really great, then people like me and you and everyone else out there in the world are going to want to celebrate that and we're going to perpetuate that great bit of art like wildfire. And this bloke, I mean, God knows, it's like hundreds of millions of streams within weeks and it's just, you know, that you're so right. We, we forget that it's not always about like, everyone look at me everyone look at me it's like no just get the thing amazing and then let the machine 
do its job. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you're like 85% making the art great and 15% putting that spent working on how you get that art out on social media, that's a pretty good mm. place to be. Like you say though, you look at a lot of artists and they're like, like I meet artists who are like, they're up and comers, no real careers of note. And they're spending almost no time on their music because they're like, oh, I've got my website, I've got my Snapchat, I've got to maintain Twitter, like all my like fucking, you know, political retweets and stuff. You know, I've got my Instagram, I'm making all these TikToks. And I'm like, if the fundamental product was better, you would not need to do all this stuff. Like you say, mm. the system will just do, do the work for it. And it's why most of my time goes into trying to make the product great, knowing that like when the product's great, a lot of the other stuff kind of takes care of itself. Well, this is, you're, you're almost like, it almost in a way feels like a personal attack because <laughs> not because you are, but because as you're talking, I'm just like, yeah, that's me. I'm, I, I'm absolutely like up to my neck in so many different other jobs. I've got a company on the side. I've got the label. We're self fucking doing everything. And it's just like, you forget. It's good. To, it's it's genuinely like good for me to be having this conversation again. It's like the first thing I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to I'm going to meditate. I'm going to exercise for an hour. I'm going to get these apps on, and I'm going to I'm going to smash it. No, but like I think your product is great as as, as well as you know. But I I and I'm not. By the way, I'm not prescribing the formula that works for me should work for everybody else. Mm. Like a lot of people, like you got a, obviously a great side hustle in your in your other business. Um, and I'm never one to say that, that it, it's it's the wrong thing to do or whatever. What I do think, have the information and be conscious. So you in particular, I would never tell you how to divide up your life. That's a personal decision. What I would tell you is you should know how long you are spending on stuff. And you should know how long you're spending on music versus how long you're spending on the label versus how long you're spending on other stuff. Because I've had periods where like life just takes over and I've also like, I don't run a record label anymore for this exact reason. It took too much time away from my own artistic stuff. But if you have the numbers, you can go, right, I spend 30% of time on my own music, my own artistic project. I spend 20, 30% uh, of time on the, on the label, 40% of time on my other business. And if those percentages equal roughly how you would like your life to be, cool, no change is needed. But once you have the information, if you suddenly go, shit, like I'm spending only 5% of time on my own musical project, but that happens to be the number one aspiration, then you, yeah. you, you, you make adjustments. So just, just have, the inf have the information know, and you only get that by, by tracking. Well, it, it, it's uh, a really handy tool. You, you know, you mentioned one already, but, but also for people listening, um, funny enough, since we last spoke, I did do exactly that. And I, and I do that actually now. And I, I actually use a, I use a platform called Toggle. Yeah. And Toggle's uh, really simple. It's just a free thing online. You know, anyone can access it. You go on a browser, you put the different things in, and and that's it. You hit a timer, and it and it keeps track. So, so you know, I, I really have adopted a lot of that um, kind of mentality that that you that you gave me uh, with that stuff. And and you, yeah, you are so right because it allows you to start making decisions based on actual information because we all know we're not great at remembering what we've applied to what. We just aren't. We're humans, and I think that this is. This is, again, such a big thing, for example, when, when we look at your, your journey as we've gone through, you know, Southampton, Manchester, LA, things start blowing up, you've got the labels, you've got moving, then you come and you, you, you create this thing called Laserface. Yeah. You know, you, you go, right, and then it was like, 
level up again and i mean i i know that we're we're really starting to go through uh eating up time now and i I do just want to dive into this because this is such a huge thing and and i was moved when i started to see the the things that you were putting out on instagram um and remind because the handle was just at gareth emery isn't it yeah that's it yeah yeah it's like if you're listening pick up your phone go uh at gareth emery and just look at the laser face stuff this is I don't even know where to begin. How do you even get that many lasers, people? That kind of production is just next level. And this is testament to how you must be dividing your time, how you must be focusing, because to get even that alone done must be a huge undertaking for you and your team. Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate in that I'd put on like a lot of big shows in the past, never as big as they got with Laserface, but I was familiar with the the rudimentals of promoting a show. Right, Mm -hmm. so... I've been doing that for, you know, probably seven or eight years in, in terms... Because obviously, when I play a nightclub, it's easy. A promoter goes, here's the money, you come and play. It's all their equipment. Very, very simple. When it's doing what we call hard ticket shows, like your Islington Assembly Hall or, or somewhere, that's that's obviously a very different scenario where you're getting a venue and you have to bring in everything. But I already knew how to do that. Laserface was... I was kind of fortunate in that my tour manager at the time happened to be this absolute genius laser programmer and he wasn't really doing it anywhere other than his youtube and he showed me some videos he put on youtube and he'd done these amazingly choreographed laser shows and i was like why are we not doing these live and he goes Mm. well he said nobody does time-coded lasers live and i was like well why not because lasers for me up to that point have been pretty shit like they'd like be like some like rainbow pattern and they'd always get turned on at the wrong time i actually wasn't that much of a fan and when i saw what he could do with lasers i was like i've never seen anything like this before why why can't we do it live and he said well you'd need to run a time code and you'd need like a server and i was like well yeah that all sounds like things that we should we should be able to do and once we realized the technology looked like it should work i hired a venue in new york an amazing venue called terminal five it's about three thousand capacity and I said, right, I said, we're going to do a show. We're going to call it Laserface. We're going to announce it in a month. And you've got four months to to figure it out. And I said, I've really pretty much a blank check. Like I said, we'll whatever money we need to support putting this production together. And um, so Did laser- people think you were completely crazy when you decided that you're going to try and do something like that. Yeah, 100 percent. And even the name Garcia, like Garcia, who's my partner and it hated he was like, oh, it's really cheesy. And I, I was like, listen, like what I've learned on doing these shows, it needs to be like, if you're from the UK, you'll know what this means. It needs to be Ron Seal. It does what it says on the tin. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, because like I've done shows in the past, but like I struggled to summarise in like one line what the shows were about. I'd be like, yeah, I'm doing some live acoustic stuff and we've got great laser, we've got great light and it's like a six hour set. And that just meant that nobody really knew what it was. Laser face. Mm -hmm. Lasers in your face. You know, very, and and we have our our kind of successor to laser face is called The Lasers. It's very, very clear what you're going to get on on both of those shows. And... um, so we had a great brand. I had a good team of people. Garcia was a genius laser programmer. Um, so he would take my music and would spend weeks choreographing these laser shows in advance. And it just meant for a degree of coordination in these lasers like had never been seen at dance music shows. And the thing just... 
became a ticket selling machine. Like for our, for our second show we did, still my biggest solo show, did eight and a half thousand people in uh, the Bill Graham Auditorium, which is in San Francisco. Uh, but we did like a 15,000 person festival. We regularly would do like five, 6,000 shows. And uh, it was it was just an amazing experience. But it was, again, I saw potential in somebody very, very talented and was able to bring that potential into a brand that had had wide-ranging appeal. It, I mean, it is just huge. And, and when I look at it and you just think about the sheer scale of what you're doing, I, you know, I cannot wait to see it, you know, one day live. And, and, as, you're, and as you're balancing that and as you're balancing your move and you're building a studio and, you, you know, you, you've got the family in the house, like you're, you're now just going into another album release, which is literally just on the horizon at this point, isn't it? So you're, yeah. when you're dropping, it's next month, right? Yeah, yeah, it comes out comes out in a month and um like the only thing that's kind of allowed me to juggle like a lot of stuff and this, this is something i learned from uh, a good friend of mine who i've known for a long time is uh, mark gillespie who um is well known in the music industry he's the manager of calvin harris the only manager calvin okay. harris has ever had discovered calvin on myspace um back in 2004 or something like that and, and i've been i've known mark since even before he found he found Calvin, he used to be a nightclub promoter who managed Calvin Harris, um, turned Calvin into this juggernaut, ended up in business with Jay-Z in Los Angeles. Really interesting dude. And whenever I spent time with him, I just noticed he didn't think about anything small. He was only ever doing the biggest shit. And to the extent that I used to think he was a bit of a bullshitter because like you'd go for lunch with him and he goes like, yeah, I'm, I'm starting my own record label with Sony. I'm becoming an artist myself. I've got a band. I'm founding a music festival, which is going to be in Winchester. And I'd be thinking this guy, he used to hand out flyers like two years ago. Well, you fucking, but it, it always have these crazy ideas. And like in those crazy ideas, like, oh, and I found this kid on MySpace called Calvin Harris. He's going to be like, he's going to be a massive star. And I can't do it quite to the extent that the Mark Gillespie does, but that guy spends absolutely zero time on anything that isn't these audacious, massive ideas. And probably 90% of them don't come off, but the 10% that do come off, because everything he's going for is audacious, massive ideas, have given him this, this incredible career. And what it showed me is, I, the, I don't spend a lot of time, there's a lot of things I don't do, right? Like I'm very difficult to contact, it's very hard to get hold of my email address or my phone number unless I know you otherwise. Not because I want to be a dick or I want to be, or I think I'm too good to contact people. I just have very little time and it's important for me to spend the few hours I have a day that I can spend not making music, doing the most exciting stuff, be it the album launches, the laser face, writing a book or, or, or whatever. And I'm just really careful with my time and I try and spend my time doing the biggest most exciting most most interesting things i can i can kind of get my hands on and, and that that's the only reason why i've been able to kind of you know have a succession of, of, of pretty fun projects well mate you know what that's that's probably such a great note to to round up on because i i'm so i feel so fortunate that you, you i know that you are so so busy right now i know that it was tricky to slot this in and and i'm, and I'm very conscious of uh, taking too much of your time but look i hope that for people out there listening today um, have have learned and absorbed as much as I have you know like Gaz honestly uh, all the time you spent with me the time we've worked in the studio seeing your work ethic seeing what you're doing it's just awesome it's very very inspiring and I'm wishing you all the best of luck for the upcoming album release for the new tours 
um it's it's exciting to watch the ride so look thank you so much for being a part of this amazing man and thank you and, and honestly one thing i always try and find time for is spreading the lessons i've learned if i can save people if i can save people time um by not making the same mistakes i did that's kind of my way of giving back i guess before i go I'll, two recommendations by the way which i wish i'd known a lot sure. earlier um as we've already discussed the information you put in your head on a daily basis it's very very powerful so mm-hmm. you can choose to wake up and read the sun showbiz column or daily mail or tmz or whatever as we've already discussed those are probably not things that are help you get ahead in music two blogs i absolutely love and you can read these on an app called feedly one is called gabe the bass player um he writes pretty much a daily blog about the music industry and one is seth godin's blog s-e-t-h-g-o-d-i-n these are two things i read every day and both of them talk about the art of creation making great art making it better and try and start every day to, to, to your listeners listening to something that makes you want to go and make something fucking great um, put the right fuel in and you'll probably get the right result. That's my last recommendation. These are amazing blogs. And I honestly, I think they've done a lot for my ability to, 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 to make, to make good art and not wake up reading the showbiz column. So um, yeah, that's a record closing, closing recommendation. Right, I love that. Well, I, for one, I'm going to be getting up tomorrow morning with a, with a new lease of life. So just one <laughs> more time. Thank you so much. Episode number four of Kovic Talk with, with Gaz Emery, absolute legend. And uh, we're, we're very keen to see what's going to be coming of the next few years, mate. And have a good one, yeah? Thanks so much, Mark. Cheers. Perfect. <laughs>